Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, who is like you? There is none like you. You are strong to save. You are faithful in love. So Lord, I thank you for redeeming us, for saving us. Give us hearts that just well up with songs of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving because there is none like you. And so Lord, I pray that you would be exalted this morning as we walk through Exodus 15. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back. I can hardly believe we're at this point in our study already. Oh, I am just delighted that we have made it with the Israelites across the Red Sea, and here we are singing. Um, you know, Exodus 14, they were just in such a hopeless, despairing situation, backed up against the sea and the, and the rocks. They were hemmed in by the army. They couldn't see, they couldn't understand what the Lord was doing. But their Redeemer, our Redeemer, he's mighty to save. And he is a wise and a loving leader who miraculously demonstrated his saving power. And he is so faithful and he is so wise. And he did this for his glory and for his namesake. And now we see in Exodus 15, the people just celebrate. They're on the other side of the Red Sea and they erupt in this great song of praise to their great and worthy Redeemer. And I got to thinking that maybe they did sing this song like Miriam says at the end, sing to the Lord, right? So they would just keep doing this as they went through the wilderness and until they got to the promised land and maybe beyond because the Exodus shaped their understanding of God. They needed to remember this, the Exodus. And it's a wonderful thing. Song is a great way to memorize and proclaim what we know about God, isn't it? Now this is the first recorded song in scripture, okay? But if we look in Job 38, it tells us that the morning stars sang together when the Lord created the world. So it wasn't the first song, it's just the first one that we come to in our Bibles. Praising God for deliverance is another theme that we see, like throughout the Psalms. Do you remember, in our, some of you were with us in our study of the Psalms. Psalm 40 is where David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. You know, I was, just, I was drowning in this miry bog. And what does he say? God put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. So when we see God's deliverance in our life and give him glory, others will see that. Now Isaiah prophesied what the people of Israel would do when they finally returned from exile many years later. And he said that they would return with singing. Now what about when Jesus was born? We read that Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, um, and others all joined the angels in singing. And I hope that you will all plan to join us uh, together for our Christmas brunch where we will sing. What about us? Well, our understanding of God is tied not so much to the Exodus, but it's tied to the cross, right? Our redemption in Jesus. And we celebrate that. And so my aim this morning is that your heart will just well up with songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord because there is no one like him in his majesty and his mercy. Now this passage is a bit tricky to outline if you tried it this week, but there's a couple of ways that you could look at it and I just wanted to bring that to your attention first. The first 12 verses are about Israel's past. 
while the rest of the song looks forward to Israel's future. Another way is that the first five verses are about God, while the rest of the song is addressed to God in worship. There's a lot of overlap between the verses and the themes, and the longer I looked at it, the more I got confused as to how to break it up. So on your outline this morning in your handouts, you'll see that it's, uh, it's just my idea, all right? So the beginning and end is the same. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, okay? So it's like a sandwich, a big sandwich, and we're gonna look at everything here in between together. All right, what God has done and that, what that reveals about who God is. First, we learn that he saves. We see this in verses one through three. So here they are on the banks of the Red Sea, and we read, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And I hear echoes of a song that I learned as a child in Sunday school, singing this. Well, the, God saves, and the people trust him, and they sing spontaneously. And the first thing we notice here is we notice this word glory, gloriously. Okay, the people are giving God glory for how glorious he is. Worship is our response to God's name and God's work in our life. They worship because of who God is and what he has done. And this should be our pattern for worship as well. It's not based on our circumstances or our emotions or our feelings. And Pastor Sam brought this out in his messages the last two weeks, right? It's we need to have a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. We also learn here that the Lord is personal. Do you see that Moses says, he's my strength, my song, he's become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. Very personal. In other places, it's more corporate, right? And then he goes on to say, also, this is about my father's God. Who is he meaning when he says, my father? He's meaning the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he's calling to mind the covenant that God has made with his people. And we can praise him because God is faithful to his covenant. In the next verses we read, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Wow, this flies in the face of our culture, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. We don't even sing onward Christian soldiers anymore, do we? No, we don't. Because in our culture, I think what we see is people want to have a God who is just ever tolerant, very soft-hearted. He's a God of love, but not a God of wrath, right? That's what we hear in our culture. That's the popular image of God that we see. But this theme of God as a warrior runs throughout the Old Testament. And what about the New Testament? Do we see it in the New Testament? We do. Second Corinthians uh, 10, four through five says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive, every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, what about Ephesians 6? Everyone knows Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God, right? Because we're in a spiritual battle. What about Revelation 19? 
we read there, we read about Jesus coming on a white horse. He's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, right, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is a man of war as well. If God is holy, then he must pour out his wrath on sin. But God's wrath is purposeful and is holy. We know that he should consume us in his wrath. We were his enemies. His vengeance is perfectly just and holy, always. And if this was not, were not true, then he could not save us securely. But he is able to save us. Now, back at the Red Sea, Moses held out his staff, right? And the waters parted. And that's really powerful. It's the Lord's mighty arm that did that. What we see is God's mighty arm saving us, not through a staff, but through the cross, all right? Jesus bore our sin and wrath at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Romans 5, I mentioned Romans 5, 9 through 11 last week. It's one of my favorites that says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. That's how we're saved. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's that theme of rejoicing again. Praise God. He is victorious. And when we're in Christ, he fights for us, not against us. Indeed, he is glorious in power. And one of the songs that I thought of is, and you have it on your handout, so if you if you know it, you can, you can just sing it in your head or we can sing it together, but, you know, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be... That's right. We're not the right man on our side, right? Who is that? Jesus? Christ Jesus, it is he. Now we come to this term, Lord Sabaoth, his name. What does that mean? I, I always kind of think Sabbath. Is that what you think when you see it? And you kind of go, well, I know that that's maybe not what it really means. But I looked it up, and it actually means Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. It's a title that's used 285 times in the Old Testament, and it's often translated Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's Lord Sabaoth. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle, okay? That's our God. All right, he is also glorious in power, four through 12, or verses four through 12. 
So I wanted to stop for a minute and just examine uh, a genre for a minute, because in this section we get into something called similes. Did you notice how many times we saw uh, phrases like, like a stone in verse 5, or like stubble in verse 7, or like 10, like lead, or verse 16, like a stone? Those are called similes, and we see those in poetry. That's a different genre than what we've been uh, accustomed to in Exodus. Chapters 1 through 14 were what's called historical narrative. They're telling the facts, okay? And now we've come to poetry. It's retelling the same story in a different way. Here's what Dr. Jason DeRoshi said. One portrayal delivers the facts, the other captures the emotive force that we would feel when we read the story. The use of similes contributes to the feeling of the poem. The changes from historical narrative to poetic song in Exodus 14 and 15 do not alter the historical truthfulness of the account, but each genre, genre portrays the history in different ways. The narrative simply unpacks a progression of temporally successive events in space and time but the song uses concrete imagery, figurative language, poetic parallelism. But through these means, it still proclaims the same story. So we're, we're seeing the same thing in Exodus 14 and 15, just in a more vivid way. So or, uh, verse four, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. He is that, he is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of your majesty. His majesty is so great. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble at the blast of your nostrils. Okay, what, what is that? That's God's sneeze, all right? He's sneezing, and his enemies are defeated. You, in your lesson, you looked at Psalm 2 that says, the nations rage, right? The kings and the rulers, they set themselves up against the Lord, but what does God do there? He laughs at them. Here he sneezes, okay? How great is Yahweh's power. And the song that I thought of that, that we really sh should sing together is How Great Thou Art. Yes. So I have some of the, just, we're only going to sing part of it, but. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider
And then we read, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, look at the arrogance of the enemy here. What does he say? He says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide my desire, I will draw my hand. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, what Pharaoh thinks he's going to do here? Well, but what does God do? He blows with his wind, and the sea covered them. They sank, here we see another simile, like lead in the mighty waters. So the redemption of Israel and the destruction of Egypt is the expression of who God is. God did not save them because they were holy or because they were worthy of saving, but because they were his covenant people. They were saved for his namesake. And in part two of Exodus, in chapter 33, we're going to come as, and see how God reveals himself as a God who is gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. There is none like him. And so the next part of the song says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because who is like God? No one. No one can be like him. He is unique. He is incomparable. Um, do you wonder why Moses used this phrase? You, you considered this in your lesson this week, majestic in holiness. He could have said so many other things here, right? He could have said sovereign in power or mighty in strength, but he... he chooses to talk about his holiness here. And you looked up the meaning of holiness. Holiness means set apart. It means completely other, fundamentally unique. There's no other God that saves his people like this. He is majestic in holiness. Oh, that our hearts would just continue to well up with songs of praise. And as we sang earlier, who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. There is no one like him. All right, number three, he leads and redeems. Okay, here Moses says in this song, he says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Here we see God's love, his steadfast love. Steadfast love is his covenant love. It's his forever, everlasting, never failing love for his people. And he says here that he, he's redeemed. We've seen that word over and over again. You remember that means to ransom or to buy back. That's what God has done. Then he goes on to say, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, what's interesting here is the tense of these words. Because in this first part of the verse, you have led in your steadfast love. We know that, that we've already seen that, right? We've seen how God intentionally rescues the people, brings them out, brings them across the Red Sea. He, re he has redeemed them. That's past tense. But here, you have guided them by your strength. Well, he's guided them a little bit so far, but are they at the place of God's holy abode yet? No, they're not. They're going to wander in the wilderness, and they're eventually going to get to the promised land, but they're not there yet. But this tense is written to let us know that it's as if it's already happened. It's so sure that this is going to happen. God has led in the past. He is so faithful. He will do it. Okay? This is it's sometimes called the prophetic perfect. 
here. And um, this is, you know, the NIV actually translates it as he will guide, you know, future. Just so you get that tense of it's something that God has done, he will do, and he will keep doing into the future. He is faithful. Now, I got to thinking about this theme of redemption through the waters, passing through waters, blood, spirit. This is a theme I'd like to trace a little bit for a minute here, okay? Think about it in the past. Back in Genesis 6-8, we saw Noah and his family who were saved through an ark. They were saved by passing through the waters safely by being in the ark. Or think back to Exodus 2, how little baby Moses was put in a basket, and he was saved through the waters of the Nile. All right? Both of these are pictures of our salvation as well. Now, think about where we are right now in, our, in the, our study of Exodus, Exodus 14 and 15, God has seen them safely as they've passed through the Red Sea. So we see that word, passing through. Isaiah 51.10 puts it this way. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea as a way for the redeemed to pass over? So we saw Passover with the blood on the doorpost, didn't we? But now we see them passing over the waters as well. Now God's holy abode, just as an aside here, this, this word holy abode, some of the scholars, the commentators say this is referring to, of course, the promised land, Jerusalem, Mount Zion as God's, you know, the place where he's going to dwell with them. But until the people get there, God's presence with them is his holy abode. And we're going to see in part two that God instructs him to build a tabernacle where he will come and dwell with them. All right, now we're going to switch to future. At this point in the song, we see here that Moses is referring to things that will happen future, going to the holy abode. God is going to guide them. Think forward to what the Israelites will face. If you know a little bit of biblical history, after they wander uh, in the wilderness, they get to the promised land. Before they can go in, they're facing an obstacle. Do you remember what that obstacle is? The, yeah, the Jordan River is raging at flood stage, and there's no way for them to get across. And God does another miracle of Red Sea proportions there. He blocks up the water. The waters stand up in a heap again, and they walk through again into the promised land. So they pass through one more time. Now, Moses is not the one that leads the people at this point. It's Joshua that ends up leading the people. What events in Jesus' life take place at the waters or at a river. His baptism, that's right. And so Jesus came and he voluntarily went under the waters of baptism, even though he had no need for cleansing from sin. It was symbolizing what he would go through as he was going under judgment, going under death as he took our sin on him. And so do you remember what happened at his baptism when he came up out of the waters? The dove came and hovered, right? And the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, and this is the, the, the dove is a spirit. Now I'm going to draw another connection for you, okay? So the word, the word for spirit is, like, is also breath, okay, wind. Okay, and so we saw this back in Exodus 14 last week when God blew with the wind. 
That word that's used is ruah, the Hebrew word, that's also the word that's used back in Genesis chapter 1, when the spirit hovered and there's light separated from darkness. So this is a theme that we see throughout scriptures of God's spirit doing a creative, mighty, saving work, both at creation, at the Red Sea, even the spirit coming down in Jesus at his baptism. And now if we think ahead again, those of you that were with us a couple years ago when we studied John, in John 3, Jesus comes and speaks with Nicodemus at night. And do you remember the conversation that they have about being born again? So we see the, think birth imagery again, going through water and blood. But what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? You have to be born of water in the spirit. So we see that connection again here. Now, when Jesus came and, and redeemed us, he passed through judgment, he died for us. God brought him back uh, to life. This is a picture of what happens to us as well. It's in, in our life when we are saved. We, are, we die with him and we're raised to new life. That, that's what baptism is a picture of. We also saw, remember back in the chapter 12 and 13 with the Passover, they applied the blood to the doorpost and we talked about going through the, the, the doorway of blood as a, as a birth canal or, or redemption that happens there. And so it's Jesus' blood that saves us, but also his going under the waters of judgment and death that saves us. So blood and water tied together here. And I wanted you, you, you have your workbooks with you. If you want to turn to the cover, hold it up. Do you see the, very, the image on the cover with the, with the blue and the red? That's why I chose that image. That is the water and the blood and showing our redemption through that. Okay, that, that is why we chose that. Do you remember at the cross when Jesus died and the soldiers wanted to make sure that he was already dead? And so they, they pierced him, water and blood comes out. So we see this theme throughout scripture. And again, we're just, we're reminded that you know we go, when we're reborn, we go from slavery to sin, to serving our master Jesus, we're delivered, we go from darkness to light, the Lord redeems us, he gives us new life through his blood, we're born again, that's a moment that we call justification, and then we go through that time where we are cutting our ties with past sins, we are, in a sense, we're cutting the cord, and we're, we're moving on and we're growing up and we see the Lord nurturing us and caring for us as we grow up in him. All right, go to verse 14 and 15, all right? The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Remember that this is 40 years later that the Canaanites are still terrified. They know that judgment is coming, and Rahab tells the spies that everyone is terrified because of that. And remember, it took them 40 years because of their lack of confidence and trust in God. They were afraid when the spies came back. They thought they couldn't go in. And in fact, they said at that time, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You know, and Pastor Sam reminded us this weekend that you know when we get to chapter 16, when we come back after our Christmas break, that's what the people do is they grumble again and they want to go back to Egypt. All right, verse 16: terror and dread 
fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, what do they do? They pass by. We see that again. Tell the people, pass by whom you have purchased. It's another beautiful way that this whole thread ties together. All right. Right, go to verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your holy abode. We see this again, God's sanctuary, all right? He is going to bring them into the place. He is faithful to his covenant promises, and God will dwell with his people. And then we come to verse 18. He reigns, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And did you hear the hallelujah chorus? Can you hear that, right? And we're gonna hear that more, I think, on our radios and when we, when we uh, as Christmas is approaching. But just think about Exodus 15, 18 now, when you hear that the Lord reigns. He shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. So as your hearts are welling up with praise, there's a couple more songs that came to mind. And because of time, we're not gonna sing those now, but if you have time, we'll sing those after we finish up here, okay? So we come now to uh, verses 19 and 20. Uh, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went to the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. The people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the sister of Aaron, the prophetess, the sister of of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. I love this reference that Moses says, all the women. Right? It wasn't just the men. This was the whole congregation here. And this is a little bit unusual that it's even mentioned that the, that the women are a part of this, just like it was unusual that it, it was the women who the gospel writers wrote were the first witnesses at the tomb. Okay, So the, uh, it's, just, it's a beautiful picture here. It also is kind of a bookend uh, to this section of, of Exodus. Do you remember in Exodus 1 and 2, how the women played such a prominent role. We had the two midwives, Shipra and Pua, remember, who saved so many little boys. We had Pharaoh's daughter, and then we had Moses' mother and Moses' sister, five women that were mentioned back in those chapters. So now we see kind of a bookend with Miriam here. All right, so Miriam says, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. He is worthy of worship. Pastor John Piper wrote, God's ultimate aim in the Exodus is to be joyfully worshiped, not just reluctantly admired by his enemies. Okay, joyfully worshiped, not just reluctantly admired by his enemies. So the people of Israel, they they sing, they praise, they exalt the Lord in joyful worship, the greatness of God's glory. And so what should characterize us as redeemed people? We should be grateful, thankful people. We are the redeemed who worship our Redeemer, both individually and corporately. Every person who is saved by grace should sing to the Lord, not because they have a good voice, but because of what God has done. And it's we sing whether we feel like it or not, because we're in Christ. Thanksgiving and praise should be that natural outflow for those who've experienced God's grace. We get redemption and salvation, and what does God get? The glory. He gets the glory. 
So our redemption should lead to rejoicing. We see this in Luke 15, where we have the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son. All of them end with rejoicing and celebration. And just a little parenthesis, our summer study next year is gonna be called Precious Pictures, the Parables of Christ. And Luke 15 will be one of the lessons that we'll have. So Colossians also exhorts us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing, all right? And as Pastor Sam has reminded us multiple times, Ephesians 5, what are we to give thanks in? Everything, right? Yes, that's right. Giving thanks always and for everything. So, sisters, we are headed to an eternity with more singing, so we might as well practice now. (laughs) The Bible says, I mean, in Revelation, we're going to sing, holy, 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 and we're going to sing, worthy is the Lamb. And we would expect to sing the song of the Lamb, right? But in your study this week, what are we also going to sing? The song of Moses. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, oh, may your heart just well up with songs of praise and thanksgiving because there's no one like him in majesty and mercy. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, great and amazing are your deeds. Oh, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Oh God, we deserve to be the ones that are thrown into the Red Sea. We're not worthy of your grace and your mercy. We are the ones that deserve to sink like stones in the Red Sea, but you saved us in your mercy. You don't deal with us as we deserve. While we were still sinners, you died for us. And while we were dead in our sins, You raised us to new life, and so we worship you, oh, our Redeemer. We thank you for all you've done for us through Jesus. And would you give us hearts of praise that just burst into singing at any time of the day or night, that we would just go to sleep with a song in our heart and awake with a song in our heart, because you are so great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.